Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Seabrow, and welcome to the definitive rap, where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. The definitive rap is proud to be the official podcast of VinNews.com. Today's show will feature two very special guests, Dr. David Tenenbaum, author of Accused of Treason, and Dan Meyer, noted attorney and investigator, whom Bela will introduce shortly, who will tell us about his role in this case and why he got involved when so many others said they couldn't help. Now a little about David Tenenbaum. He's a civilian mechanical engineer who works for the Army at the Tank Automotive and Armaments Command Base in Warren, Michigan. In 1997, he was falsely accused of being an Israeli spy by a known anti-Semite and several other anti-Semitic co-workers who referred to Tenenbaum as the little Jewish spy. The FBI conducted a full-scale criminal investigation of Tenenbaum and his family. It resulted in an official report to FBI Director Louis Free that there was no evidence that Tenenbaum had done anything wrong. The Tenenbaum's federal lawsuit for religious discrimination was dismissed after the Army falsely claimed that they would not be able to disclose the actual reasons or motivations for their actions without revealing state secrets. Then-Senator Carl Levin had ordered the uh, internal, uh, the IG, uh, Inspector General, to investigate the Tenenbaum case and determine if the Army was guilty of anti-Semitism. After over two years, the IG issued a report which confirmed that the U.S. Army had indeed was guilty of anti-Semitism. To this day, the Army refuses to make Tenenbaum whole and compensate him for false accusations against him. The government has never been held accountable for their anti-Semitism. And David will tell us more during the interview. Bela, please interview, I'm sorry, uh, introduce Dan Meyer. Thank you, Alan. Who doesn't like a good fictional spy story, and especially one where the good guy is falsely accused of treason? But in fiction, the good guy, no matter how many challenges and roadblocks he encounters, that only serves to increase the suspense for the reader of the book or the viewer if it's a movie. However, by the end of the story, the good guy always comes out ahead. In real life, sometimes, and hopefully not too often, uh, the old adage, nice guys finish last, can apply. Good people, people who live by the book, people who dot their I's and cross their T's and follow the rules can be accused of crimes they did not commit and have false allegations drummed up. Our guest today, Dr. David Tenenbaum, an Orthodox Jewish man on Shabbos, the Jewish day of rest, was invaded when armed FBI agents stormed into his home seeking evidence to back up false allegations of espionage. From there on, his life has become like a movie, but worse, a witch hunt. And he wrote about his experience in his book, Accused of Treason. And while we're going to hear from Dr. Tenenbaum, we are also going to hear from a hero, a man who was not going to sit by idly while an innocent person is being accused of a crime he didn't commit. 
he was going to blow the whistle on this injustice. And that man is Dan Meyer. Mr. Meyer is managing partner of Tully Rinke, I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly, PLLC's Washington, D.C. office. He has dedicated more than 25 years of service to the field of federal employment and national security law as both a practicing attorney and federal investigator and senior executive. Throughout three presidential administrations, Dan promoted the federal whistleblowing mission and its related policies and statutes. As intelligence communities, I see foremost whistleblowing subject matter expert from 2013 to 2017. He served as the executive director for intelligence community whistleblowing and source protection and was instrumental in establishing the IC's first program of its kind. From 2004 to 2013, Dan served the U.S. Department of Defense Inspector General first as director of civilian reprisal investigations and then as director of whistleblowing and transparency. In these positions, he investigated or provided oversight to numerous high profile cases, among them disclosures involving the 9-11 attacks, the abuse of polygraph procedures in counterintelligence counterintelligence cases, the use of the security clearance decision-making process to reprise and discriminate, and the treatment of soldiers and their remains after inquiry uh, to their death or injury. Dan and David, welcome to our show. Thank you. Before we hear from Dan with regard to what happened from his perspective, David, we know throughout history that bad things happen to good people. And I want you to know that you have many people who believe in you and have followed your harrowing experience during those years. And although you have previously told your story when you were a guest on our show several months ago, Your story needs to be told in a very big way for every person to understand how this could happen in this day and age in a country like the United States. Please explain to our listening audience what you were doing, what project you were working on, and why was there an investigation conducted on you? That goes back many years. And uh, I think the reason it's also important is still continuing to this day. But uh, I was working on a project called the LAST program, Light Armored System Survivability Program. And that program, this is is going back probably from 1995 even. And the program was about, we knew at the time that we had vehicles which were susceptible to IEDs and other types of weaponry. And I was working with the Germans and the Israelis to develop a program to increase the safety and survivability of the our, our actually primary vehicle was the Humvee. And uh, we were all working together trying to develop the, a methodology to protect our soldiers. Uh, the, there were people, apparently, well, actually, for sure, there were people within the Army, uh, one primary person, Lieutenant Colonel Johnson, and any at the time, who we found out later, although I kind of figured it when I was working, I dealt with them, who hated the Israelis and didn't like Jews. And this came out in uh, discovery documents. It came out in interviews with people that worked under him where he was actually physically, emotionally abusive to his own people. The program was canceled when uh, Simonini had uh, played a large part in having me uh, almost fired, but I was suspended and I was accused of treason. He was one of the main perpetrators behind that. The 
program not well having been canceled it was it was meant to save lives and we found out later and i said at the time we wrote a report that said if we let out these humvees if we ever get into a wartime situation and these humvees go out in the field they were not made for frontline battle they were made for rear echelon battle and if they go out the way they are soldiers will die and my job as a government engineer my job as a person in survivability and armor was to make sure our client the soldier came home alive one piece and uninjured because the program did not go soldiers as you know take a look at the casualties thousands of soldiers were either either maimed or killed based on the fact that one i believe this program did not take place and it all was was because of anti-semitism which we found out later on and um uh Dan Meyer can, can uh, attest to that as well, but I was initially hired for the, because of the fact that I spoke Hebrew. I came from, I used to work in the university. I worked in, um, as a graduate student in a medical school, um, in one of the medical schools in Detroit. And then I went to work for General Dynamics, and then I got a job with the Army, and they said, hey, you're perfect for us. You speak Hebrew. You've been to Israel. You've got connections there. You can really help us with our Israeli programs. You could be the guy that takes those Israeli programs. I was sent to Israel three times for work I was doing. And, and uh, my reports were uh, very, very intricate. I was sent at one point for two weeks, another time for six weeks in Israel. And I found out later after this was going on, after the accusations, they took my reports and they shredded them. So we never had any, there was, just, there was only one copy or maybe two copies of it, but they made sure that those copies were destroyed. And I didn't know about it until after I went to see them. And they said, oh, we got rid of them. We shredded them. I said, wow, thank you. And I was accused of treason for the very reasons I was hired. I speak Hebrew. I've been to Israel. I have connections in Israel. And uh, it was just downhill from there. If you like, I can, I can go into the details of that. So the, uh, the, the basic premise is that if you are working for the government, if you work for the army, and you don't like something I'm doing, you might see something and say, hey, this guy, this guy's doing something funny. Now, we had four liaison officers on our base at the time, an Israeli, a Brit, a German, and a Canadian. I work with all of them. Depending what program I was working on, those are the ones I, I work with. I work with Israeli because I was working on the last program, and they were our primary partner. I worked with the Germans, too. But the Israeli one was the primary one at that time because the Germans eventually went out of the program. There are people that said that didn't like what I was doing. I was speaking to an Israeli on base too much. And you can file, it's called the Saida, Subversive Act of Espionage Directed Against the Army. And you have to file that. If you see something I'm doing wrong, you really think I'm committing espionage or doing something wrong, you must file that as soon as you find that information out. One person filed and said, you know, a Jew speaking to another Jew, that makes us nervous. Or another one, I think I had seven. I don't know. That Dan could, can, can tell. I think it was seven Saidas filed against me all together. You know, he speaks Hebrew. Yeah, I spoke Hebrew to my kids who were little at the time, one and a half, four and a half years old, on the phone. So they pick up, they'd be able to speak Hebrew too. Well, that made them nervous. And they would, they, people kept on sending these Saidas in and filing against me. One guy filed a Saida against me nine years afterwards. And the FBI said to him, well, nine years, that's a long time, isn't it? And he said, well, they said, why didn't, why didn't you file sooner? Which he's already in violation, federal violation. And he said, well, I didn't want to appear anti-Semitic. Well, 
I think finally nine years after something happened, appears sort of anti-Semitic. Um, eventually, again, I'm going to cut through the everything here. Eventually, I was um, accused of treason. I was told, but I wasn't, I, I, let, me, let me backtrack for a second. I never knew it was going on. And my boss, pushed by with a push from Simonini, was trying to have my security clearance upgraded from secret to top secret. And it really wasn't an upgrade. What it was is that they wanted me to file, to put the paperwork in for the upgrade so that they wouldn't confront me directly and say, hey, are you committing espionage? Oh, sure I am. Yeah, I, 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 everybody knows that. It's like, no, what they wanted to do, they wanted to, for me not to have an attorney present. They didn't want an attorney getting involved. So they, they, it was a ruse to have to file the paperwork and then they can interview me. Then they can put me through a polygraph. Except I wasn't cooperative. I didn't want the security clearance upgrade. People don't want it necessarily. It's like, I didn't need it. It's a headache. But my boss finally said, you got to have it done. You got to do it. And I went through an interview process where I was threatened uh, at that point with getting fired because they say you you're, you didn't, you don't have answers to questions we've asked. Like what I was in Israel a year before. So why wasn't, uh, why don't I remember the name of the hotel I stayed? or people I spoke to at a conference. Well, I stayed in a hotel close to a year before. I travel a lot. I can't remember the name of my kids sometimes, and they want me to remember a name of a hotel. Or how many people do you speak to at the conference? Wait, maybe about 100. What did you speak to them about? I said, seriously? Every person they want to know who I spoke to, what I spoke to them about, when I spoke to them, where I spoke to them. So therefore, it was good guy, bad guy, but good cop, bad cop, and it was a setup. And eventually I went through a polygraph, and because I was threatened if I didn't, then I didn't know my rights, that I would be fired. And the polygrapher was already read on to what was going on. He, he literally the polygraph threatened me and said, um, I've done other Jews before and gotten them to confess. I'll get you to confess too. That's automatically, boy, you, you, you've messed up at that point. Polygraph isn't, no, isn't any good and you can't do that. And uh, he even admitted, you're not, you're not allowed to do that. And, and, and again, Dan could speak to that as well, but um he, there was a lot of violation of rules. He, he said to me, he wanted a confession. He wanted me to write a confession. I said, confess to what? I'll confess to being a spy, but I'm not. You got to write it down. I want you to confess. I'm not confessing anything. He said, well, you're, you have, uh, it was like, think on a Thursday you have until Monday to confess. So I left and uh, he went to the FBI and told him I confessed. He lied, said, I confessed to everything. I confessed to giving every bit of classified data I ever had to every Israeli I ever knew over the course of 10 years inadvertently. Tell me how that's possible and we can talk afterwards about that. Um, and uh, again, skipping through this, eventually FBI, FBI was already involved. They were in the background. Came in my house on Shabbos, took it apart. Two little kids at the time, my four and a half year old, my daughter at the time, um, they were there for six hours. My daughter, uh, it took her years. She would scream and anybody would come to the door and say, don't open the door. You don't know who it is. Don't open it. it years. It, it took her from that point. And eventually I was suspended from my job. When the FBI agent, the lead agent, James Cugino came to my inn, he actually even said, I don't know what I'm doing here. He in a deposition. said, I told him not to do this. I was, I was suspended and uh, eventually I was cleared of everything. Uh, I was exonerated. And my, I fought to get my security clearance back because they, they took it away. 
And they not only gave it back to me, they upgraded it. And we sued and we were winning. In, it, in our in, in discovery, we actually deposed Simonini and Simonini said something like, again, paraphrasing, um, you know, that's just who Jews are. That's part of their culture. That's what they do. They pulled them out of the deposition and um, they invoked the state secrets privilege fairly soon thereafter. So you can't really sue. Eventually, we got Carl Levin, Senator Levin involved. He got the inspector general's office to do an investigation. The inspector general's office, um, uh, I use the term, they were neo-Nazis in the inspector general's office. Uh, and uh, Dan was one of the good guys and he believed in the case. I, I met him when um, I had to like give sworn testimony at one point and fly to Washington. And we ended up, um, he, they said it would take, Carl Levin said it would take maybe six months to do the investigation took about two and a half years because there were people in the inspector general's office that were trying to change the, the, the report. And even we had an email that even said, you know, from one guy in the inspector general's office, we were able to get somebody sent us information. And one of the emails said, yeah, we ruled for Tenemon, change it. Don't let it go out like this, paraphrasing. And uh, one of the head guys, I think it was Henry Shelley, that actually wrote an email said the only reason Carl Levin got involved was Carl Levin's Jewish. Peter Levine is number one guy's Jewish and Tenenbaum's Jewish. It's a, it's a Jewish conspiracy. Um, I eventually, the report came out in my favor, said discrimination. The army said, we don't have to do anything about it. Nothing. We tried, we went to, we went to congressional people to help. And again, cutting it to this day, everybody who, who actually was fighting to have me put in jail for the rest of my life, and we were told that was a good chance. Um, they got awards. They got promoted. Simonini actually got promoted. Uh, he went. He went from a, from a, a um, government job, army to to civilian army job, and to this day, I mean, I just recently I was suspended from my job. Uh, I keep getting. I was transferred. They 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 wanted me to do what's called inventory count pencils, essentially, and to do computer work on some kind of program. I said. I, I'm not a computer person. I'm a chemical bioengineer. I have a doctorate, but I don't know computers. Ask my kids. They'll tell you right now. Don't give Abba, don't give our father the uh, the uh, computer stuff to do. I mean, I can't even turn my phone on the right way. This is different ways. And they said, oh, you can't do this. You're refusing to do this. You're uh, you're suspended. We're, we're, and the, the whole point is to get me, to get rid of me. And we've gone to groups. We've tried to get help and, and we're stuck. We're at this point. So um, it's uh, the fact that I'm a whistleblower with the last program and I've been retaliated against countless times. Uh, and my attorney has actually said they've got blood on their hands. And as a matter of fact, one, at one point in time, I actually was in, I can't really tell you where I wrote about it in the book. And I was speaking to someone who dealt with a lot of the casualties, a lot of the kids. I call them kids, 18, 19, 20 year old kids uh, who were killed or maimed because they were in a Humvee that got rocketed by an IED. And she looked at me and said, you guys designed the vehicles. You, you do all this. And she was a physician and she saw what was going on. And, and she said, she was crying, she was literally crying to me. She said, why didn't you do your job? Why didn't you fix this? And I said, I, I did my best. I tried. And I said, this, I never put blame on anybody else. I said, but it's not my fault. And there were people involved. And I told her a little bit of the story. And she said, well, what happened to them? I said, they got promoted. Right. And that's, that's the biggest problem we have. I'm not looking for revenge. 
if the government wants people like that, that's their business. I want accountability. I want somebody to say to me, we messed up. We, we really, we made a big mistake. And I'm, I think I'm one of the first people, again, Dan can tell you more, that the IG's office came out with a report in my favor that said exactly what we said. It's just discrimination. And there was never any remedy, never any remedy in this whole situation, which is ludicrous. Because if this would happen in private industry, it would have been stopped before it would have gone any further. Not only is there any remedy, I get suspended. <laughs> right. So, David, actually, that's a segue. I want to ask Dan this. So, Dan, I'm not going to ask you the stupid question of how could this happen in America? Because anything can happen in America. But as we hear David's story and we read the book, there are so many bad guys in this story. So my first question is, why did you choose to get involved in this big mess? And number two, and this is a question everyone's going to have, how is it that we couldn't break this into little pieces and go after each person individually? They're not all that smart. Yes, the army can play the you know state secret game, but when there are so many parts in this puzzle, and at least half of them have to be stupid people, how is it that we couldn't like pit one against the other, break them down, and you know, go after it that way? Well, those are great questions. Uh, the first one is I tried to not take this case. As I've shared with David a number of times, uh, it was brought to me twice. And I said, I do whistleblowing uh, investigations. I'm not going to do a religious discrimination case. I still don't do uh, EEO law uh, here at the law firm. By the way, we're not, uh, uh, I'm not involved in David's representation team uh, with anything he's going on right now. I'm actually barred by the Government and Ethics Acts from, from representing him on this matter. So what happened was uh, our general counsel at the Department of Defense Inspector General's office uh, wrote a memo to Carl Levin saying that we would not take the case. Um, and uh, he forgot to disclose that he was the head of Army litigation that had defended against David prior to the case being sent to the Inspector General's office. And uh, another whistleblower tipped off uh, Senator Levin that uh, the person who had declined to, uh, who had defended the government was now telling the IG to turn it down. And this memo had been sent to Levin. He famously sent it back in a fact to the IG, find a better lawyer. Um, I still have a copy of that uh, memo and in, in felt pen at the top, find a better lawyer. My boss came down and said, look, you turned this down twice before. I wouldn't be in this jam uh, if you had taken it the first time. So you're stuck with this case. And so uh, off we went. Uh, when I interviewed David, my initial sort of assessment was, yes, it's important to go after the religious discrimination issue, but the whistleblowing on last was the most important. Because you got to remember the context here. We had just won the war in Afghanistan. I hate to remind everybody, but when this case came to me, we had won in Afghanistan. We were then engaged in Iraq and light armored survivability was a big issue. Had the Army and the Marine Corps followed the lead that David made in the late 1990s, we would have been up armored. We would have been ready to take on the asymmetrical warfare threat in the uh, Middle East. Uh, we were not because they dithered, they dallied, they wanted to do something else with their defense procurement budgets. And so we were unprepared for the, the war that we had entered into in Afghanistan, but did not have to really pay a price there because we, we won so quickly. Uh, and in Iraq, we were getting hammered bad. Um, so the context was failure, okay? And this was one of 
four or five cases that I had that related to light armored survivability. Franz Giles case was in my office uh, that related to the Marine Corps uh, uh, matter. Uh, he's spoken publicly on that. And then I had several that I can't speak about uh, that related to the ability or the efforts by the Defense Department to rearmor vehicles, uh, notably up in the Albany, New York area. So I took it uh, and found a way to kind of fit it into our investigative priorities. But very quickly, I found out this was about religious discrimination. Um, I had volunteer law clerks at the time. I picked a, a Jewish law clerk who's in great law practice now in Southern California. And I had a Catholic law clerk. I put them together and I said, I'm sticking you in the cubicle across my office. And I expect you to fight about the assessment of whether this is religious discrimination. Because as I listen to you argue about this case, I'm going to figure out whether there was discrimination or not. And uh, Chris and Lindsay did a marvelous job working on the case. I had, they were two volunteer law clerks. That was it. And I had an army of attorneys arrayed against me on the other side. The critical piece of evidence for me was when I interviewed one of the witnesses and uh, I had asked, I had mentioned to him that I taught uh, education uh, for ministry in the Episcopal Church. I was somewhat cognizant of uh, Christian Old Testament studies the individual was an evangelical Christian, or no, he's a Roman Catholic, actually. And I got him onto the subject, and this was on actually tape, of uh, what sort of profiling people could do of Jewish Americans. And he said right on the tape that Jews were inherently disloyal. They were inherently disloyal because they had two loyalties, one to Israel, one to the United States, so they could not be trusted. That piece of evidence in the hands of the Inspector General, uh, Claude Mick Kicklighter, a former uh, Army general, so he's not only an inspector general, but he was a real general. Uh, I sat down with him. I said the evidence. I said, you know, sir, I, I I feel awful that I've unleashed this war within your your building about the finding for David Tenenbaum, but I can't have this on the record and not say in the report that this is discrimination. That's how discrimination got into the final report. The more important thing now in Washington today is how this happened, your second part of the question. And it's a very critical observation for reasons you're probably not connecting. Two weeks ago, there was the uh, announcement uh, that there was a staff director appointed to the January uh, 6th commission up on Capitol Hill, looking into whether there was an insurrection against the United States. That staff director, as an inspector general, reprised to some against somebody, not unlike David, in fact, that individual worked on David's case at one point. And so the question came up in Washington, how can we have a uh, adjudicated repriser, somebody who's gone after whistleblowers, be considered for a, a prominent congressional position and nobody on Capitol Hill, no congressional office on the Capitol Hill, a member or a senator, raise an objection to the fact that a known repriser was being offered a benefit back in the federal government. So David's case was not only involved in the light armored survivability side of, of the equation of Washington, but it's also one of those cases, frankly, at this point, uh, which is a category of cases uh, where inspectors general or their staff themselves have reprised against whistleblowers. So in addition to the army sins in this matter that David has articulated quite well in his discussion, there's now this question of how an inspector general knew there was reprisal and ended up with a product that would not grant a remedy to David. And that's a very uh, simple um, uh, observation. I am not under a non-disclosure agreement with the Office of the Inspector General of the Defense Department. I am with 
the intelligence community, so I won't talk about any intelligence matters here. But in David's case, there were four, four uh, draft reports. Uh, the first one was done under something called Title V. I won't go into the details. Uh, people had some uh, objections with that legal basis for uh, the report. Uh, so I very quickly moved it from a Title V to a traditional Title VII. Uh, that's what you know as the EEO laws, discrimination laws. Uh, I wrote that report in about two weeks because I thought the general counsel's office was going to try to slow roll this, and they were counting on me taking another six months uh, to finish the report. So we, we produced a second draft, which was a, a beautiful draft, lots of evidence cited in it. Uh, that then got uh, sort of side table and a third draft was started uh, by a attorney uh, up uh, in our general counsel's office, working with uh, my immediate supervisor, the head of uh, investigations for the Department of Defense. That draft got to four pages and a whistleblower went to Senator Levin again and magically Senator Levin weighed in and draft number three went away uh, because it was an attempt to uh, scuttle the uh, uh, finding for David. Uh, and then everything else boiled into the uh, worst compromise of all, which is the publicly known draft number four, uh, which as a finding of discrimination, but led to no remedy because the critical evidence was left out of the report. So what you saw in this very technical inside baseball game is over a period of about eight months, the report was modified and material taken out to leave a finding that would not give a remedy to David because the army needs the direct evidence in front of it uh, to actually go forward and give him a remedy and, and make him whole, put him back to where he was before all this started or where he would be now if this had never been done to him. That same approach has been done by other inspectors general uh, across the board in the intelligence community uh, and other department of defense uh, uh, agencies uh, it is part of what uh, the Government Accountability Project calls the war against the whistleblowers. And this is a bipartisan problem. Uh, uh, I'm a Democrat. Uh, I hate to speak ill of the party, but there are uh, Democratic leaders in Washington who have been just as aggressive against whistleblowers as Republicans. There are Republicans who are giants in protecting whistleblowers. They often don't get credit for it. But by and large, there's a professional cadre within the city of Washington that does not want to have accountability for wrongdoing. And so David is in that group uh, that is, is still very relevant in town. Uh, I think personally, there needs to be another set of congressional hearings. I think David needs to testify publicly in those hearings. Uh, and I also think groups such as the Council of Inspectors General for Integrity and Efficiency uh, need to accept a complaint from David and they need to review the actions of the Department of Defense Inspector General's office to see if there was corruption in the way his report was handled. So that's how it happens. It's a, it's a very old tale. Uh, it's as old as, as human history, which is that people in powerful positions do not wanna be called on the carpet uh, for their decisions. And people in weak positions, and that would be David in this situation, right. uh, will not have the ability to go forward and get justice unless somebody speaks up for him. And the question now is who in Washington will speak up for him? Will the White House speak up for him? Uh, will the leaders in Congress speak up for them? Uh, those are the folks that now need to engage so that uh, the Office of Special Counsel and the Office of Inspector General can be reviewed to see if they were complicit in the, in the violence, frankly, that was administered against uh, David Tenenbaum. Okay, Bela, we have about three minutes. Your turn. Okay. <laughs> uh, Dan, in order to help someone well, 
you need to truly believe in them, even when the evidence initially paints a different picture. What was your impression of David? What made you believe in David Tenenbaum so strongly that he was innocent and that he was targeted by the government to serve as an investigator in his case the way you did? Oh, very simple question. So as an investigator, you always look for information that shows that your witness is lying to you, okay? And a lot of them do. Uh, I never found anything uh, in the research I did, in the, in the interviews I did, that showed that David was anything but honest. But even more importantly, my boss, Richard Thornton Race, who's a great guy, one of David's big supporters, came to me and said, go talk to the usual suspects and find out whether there's any dirt on this guy, because I don't want to back him and end up you know, there being dirt. And I can't mention the offices that I, I consulted with, and I can't mention the offices I visited, but I made several visits around Washington and in New York, and I could not find anything in David's file uh, that would say that he should not uh, have been found to be reprised against uh, by the Army in this matter. So uh, the investigation panned out that he was honest, and so did uh, my interaction with him. Okay, Dan, we've got about a minute and a half left. So you've been in Washington for a long time. There are committee hearings all the time. What would it take to get a committee in Washington to let David come in and tell his story? People need to get on the Internet. Your listeners need to get on the Internet. Go to Senator Grassley's website. Go to Senator Peters' website. Senator Peters is David's senator, okay? He's the chairman of the committee that has jurisdiction over the DODIG. Go to those websites and do the email communication and send it to the staff member saying that David Tenenbaum needs to appear in a hearing. That's how you get it started. I mean, we all sit back and say that the action's done in our name and every action done by a federal bureaucrat is done in our name because we all pay taxes to pay them. And we all say those actions are wrong, but we don't follow through on, on pushing to make the change. And right now, people need to get on those keyboards, tap away, and get a hearing for David Tenenbaum. Okay. Dan, is there a script? Because we will do that. That will be the definitive rep's mission. Is there a, does your office have a script that we can send to these senators so that I don't have people sending emails, getting all obnoxious yeah. and disrespectful, yeah. and throwing it out? I've shared texts like that with David in the past. I'm sure he can forward it on to you. Okay, terrific. Very quick question, David, um, before we finish up the show. You had the ultimate betrayal when not only were you targeted by your superiors, but you were tricked and ambushed by colleagues. The FBI embarrassed you when they searched your home. And although fully exonerated, the persecution is still continuing. Tell us about that very quickly. I know it's a long story and I'm encouraging people to purchase your book and I will mention that at the end. But please tell us about, about uh, the persecution and how it's continuing and how it's impacting your life with regard to earning a living and also in your personal life. Your family must certainly be suffering too. It's, um, thank God, my, have my family and friends, uh, actually many people think that the case has been over for years. And um, then the book came out. And after I told them that people still treat me now, as if you remember, I've been working for the government for almost 37 years. And when people are above me now who've been promoted, and I haven't been promoted, we're kids who have no clue with really what it takes to be an engineer to get programs out that have been trying to get rid of me. I, like I said, I've been suspended. When I, when I go and speak, I, I've been invited to speak around the world. I've spoken on my case. And, and, I've, and I told people, tell people what's going on. And I say to them after they read the book, what do you think? What's your emotion? 
And everybody tells me the same thing. We felt like taking the book and throwing it across the room. We were so angry. And I said, that's the right emotion. So, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. We are out of time. I urge our listening audience to order Accused of Treason by Dr. David Ed Tenenbaum and to read this page, Turner. Thank you both for joining us. And on behalf of Alan and myself, thank you to our listening audience for tuning in to The Definitive Rap and to vinnews.com for our show being their official podcast. Thank you both. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Rap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Rap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Rap.